Father in heaven, we must have your help. And specifically, we must have the Spirit to come and to open our hearts, the eyes of our hearts to see and the ears to hear for us to receive marvelous things from your law. So we pray for him to be here, present and working in every heart and in my mouth, that you may be glorified, that we may more and more be the congregation that you have called us in Christ to be. For it's in his name we ask it. Amen. First Corinthians chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share in the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we've become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. We labor, working with our hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I did not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach them everywhere and in every church. 
Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. And I will find out, not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod? Or with love in a spirit of gentleness? You may remember I mentioned to you several weeks ago that I was served a sobering reminder how swiftly the years are passing by a teenaged cashier who, without even asking, recently gave me the senior discount and a cup of coffee. Another indication for me has been the phone calls and emails I've received of late from younger pastors calling and asking me, of all people, for advice in their own pastorates. I was reminded in one of those calls just how poorly many churches and even pastors understand the role and the work of the pastor. Not, mind you, do I imagine for one moment that I have arrived or have mastered the pastorate. An older pastor confided in me a couple of decades ago, no matter how long one has been at this work, every day of the pastor, it makes you feel like a mere neophyte to the ministry. But one of those calls was from a young pastor who was just seeking from me a little bit of a reality check. He'd been pushed off center by a deacon of the congregation he serves, who had recently pulled him off to the side to offer to this young pastor this counsel. The deacon informed this young pastor that what the congregation really needed was not a preacher so much, but rather a pastor, as he made that distinction in his mind. And what he meant by that distinction, he went on to explain, was that He was spending way too much time preparing sermons and not nearly enough going about visiting with the congregants. What we need is not a preacher. We need someone to help us with our practical needs. Now, all of you who were here a month ago for our deacon ordination service will immediately recognize the irony of the situation here. Here's a deacon whose calling is to free the pastor from diaconal duties in order to concentrate instead on the word and worship, counseling his pastor to do more deaconing. Well, no wonder so many pastors and pastors' families are burning out of the pastorate. They're trying desperately to be, and some congregations are pressing them to be what the Bible never intended them to be. Everything from CEOs to chief cook and bottle washer and everything in between. And pastors seeking to please everyone end up pleasing no one And so they go, as many do, through the typical cycle of being first idolized and then criticized and then ostracized 
It's a cycle that's been repeated ad nauseum in the church from the 1st to the 21st century. Paul was apparently idolized by some in the Corinthian congregation and criticized by others and even ostracized, though Paul made it clear in verse 19 that he would be there again in Corinth just as soon as the Lord willed. And then both he and they would see just how things stood between them, whether there was any real power behind all of their critical words, their talk. He didn't wish to be confrontational. From what we know about Paul, he was the opposite. But sometimes problems simply need to be confronted, and this was certainly one of those. But just how should a congregation think about its, its pastors? And how are pastors to consider and to carry on and to conduct themselves as ministers in the church? Well, here's a thought. Two of them, actually. Verse 1. They are to be servants and stewards. Servants and stewards. First, pastors must be servants. Aha, you think. So the deacon was right. Remembering from last month's installation of the, of the deacons that the word diakonos, translated deacon, means servant. A pastor is really supposed to be another deacon, maybe a chief deacon. Well, curiously, it's not the word diakonos that is translated here as servant in verse 1, even though it was the word that Paul used to describe himself in Apollos back in chapter 3. Instead, it's the word hyperitus, which meant under rower. Under rower. Think of a, of a Roman warship in the belly of which there were galley slaves chained to their oars and forced to row the ship to its destination or, or into war. The idea is that pastors should consider themselves as subordinates, subordinates of the lowest kind and subject to direction. Subordinates to whom, though? Subordinates to the congregation? Well, to be sure, pastors serve the church. But Paul is specific. He says they're servants, they're under rowers to Christ. Servants to Christ. It's Christ whom they serve. Now, of course, ministers serve the congregation, but that does not mean that the congregation is the minister's master. As Jonathan Edwards explained to his congregation in Northampton, ministers are sent forth by Christ to their people on His business. They are His servants and messengers, and when they have finished their service, they must return to their master to give him an account of what they have done. I've not been able to confirm this, but I recently heard a pastor quote Edwards explaining to his congregation that he was their servant, to be sure. But neither he nor they should imagine for a moment become so confused as to think that that meant that they were his master. 
Pastors forget this very easily. How easily I've forgotten it. And in doing so, I've made people instead and, and people's opinions of me my master, my masters. And in doing so, I confess to you, dear flock, I have made an idolater of myself. I have far too much reveled in your praises and been reeled by your criticisms. Though I will hasten to say there has been very little of the latter for which I'm deeply grateful. I really am. Some pastors I know and their families have been beaten and beaten and beaten down by incessant barrages of destructive criticism, and that has never been the case for me here in Owensboro. In fact, quite the opposite. The point is pastors are not masters. Pastors are servants. And they're servants of Christ. They're under rowers in Christ's kingdom, advancing it from the bottom deck, not from the top rung. Christ is the ship's captain. Christ is on the bridge. Christ at the wheel. He's in the wheelhouse, steering the ship of his kingdom. Pastors need to remember that, that they are servants. And second, pastors are stewards. The Greek word is okonomoi, and it refers to persons who manage large estates on behalf of the owner of the state, the, of the estate. The word is variously translated administrator or manager, typically in the Bible. A manager was also himself a slave, as you know, to his master. It's a position of responsibility, to be sure, of awesome responsibility, of real authority, but still, he is a subordinate. So, what are pastors stewards of? Verse 1 again, they are stewards of the mysteries of God. That's what's been entrusted to them. So, what are those? What are the mysteries of God? Well, simply this, what God has revealed. Remember that in Scripture, mysteries are not things that are difficult to solve, like a murder mystery or something like that, but rather things that were once hidden that God has revealed and made known. So pastors, as they preach the Word of God, as they administer the sacraments, they are stewarding, they are stewards of the mysteries of God, the things that God has revealed as they apply them to the lives of Christians in the course of worship, preaching and teaching in public and private. They are stewards of what God has revealed, taking what does not belong to them, but managing it and distributing it according to the orders they've received from their master. Like a butler in a great house, they, they bring food and and supply nourishment to the family they serve. In this case, the family of God, the body of Christ. Now, before I go on from there, I, I want to pause again to say that there are some houses where the butler's job is, de is a delight. And there are some houses in which the butler's job is uh, really, or threatens to be a drudgery. This particular house 
is of the former sort. The servant, the steward in this pulpit knows the happiness of serving with joy and not with groaning, to quote Hebrews 10. And any steward would be grateful to serve such a house in the kingdom. It's an encouragement to this steward to see the mysteries of God received and applied with humility and gratitude by the power of the Holy Spirit, unlike the experience of some stewards whose hands nearly get bitten off in the process of offering their flock's food. But we hurry on to show that there are at least four ways that the pastor, the servant of Christ, the steward of the mysteries of God must do his work. And they are these, faithfully and freely and foolishly and fatherly. This is what made Timothy stand out, you know, as a minister of the word according to Paul in verse 17. He was faithful, Paul says. What caught Paul's attention in Colossians 1 about Epaphras and whom Paul calls a faithful minister of Christ and Tychicus, whom he describes in that same book as a faithful minister and fellow servant of the Lord on your behalf. <laughs> what must this be to be called a faithful minister by the apostle Paul? What, what pastor could not die happy the day that he hears the Apostle Paul call him a faithful minister. Every minister worth his salt would agree, except, of course, for Paul himself. Because it goes on, Paul does, to make the point immediately that second, the servant of Christ, the steward of the mysteries of God, must serve freely, that is, free from the judgment of men, even of Paul who would not trust even his own judgment of himself, let alone any other mere mortal. But with me, he says, verse 3, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It's the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. In other words, while it obviously had not gone unnoticed by Paul that he was being criticized, and bitterly so by some in Corinth, my guess is, in fact, that it probably hurt him personally and deeply, Objectively speaking, it did not matter one whit what the Corinthian Christians thought of him, or the Colossian, or the Philippian, or the Thessalonian, or the Roman Christians, for that matter. And not that Paul was above constructive criticism against taking advice and direction from wise counsel? Of course not. But as far as real judgment was concerned, neither they nor even he himself, that is, his own conscience, was, was a reliable judge, a faithful judge. 
God alone is judge, verse 5, because he alone sees and knows the heart, and he will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. A fact, by the way, that sends a shudder up your pastor's spine. I want to return again to this next week to make application of this principle to all of us. So just for now, let me say to myself and any other pastor who might be providentially in the hearing of my voice right now, our tribunal is in heaven. Do not trust any man to judge you or your preaching or your ministry as good or bad. Even your own heart, pastor, may tell you that all is good when it is not. Or that all is bad when, in fact, you have done right. That's how fickle, that's how unreliable the judgment of men and even of your own conscience remains in this fallen world. Ministers are servants of Christ, and faithfulness to Him and to Him alone is their singular standard and the only judgment that really counts. And soon enough, every minister will appear before his master either to stand or to fall. And it will be enough. It will be more than enough for the faithful steward, no matter what men told him about his ministry, no matter how they praised him, no matter how they berated him, no matter what their own hearts had to say about them. When the master returns and to hear him say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Third, the faithful steward of the mysteries of God must be willing to be thought a fool. Verse 10, we are fools. He says, for Christ's sake. Preaching, Paul has already made the point earlier in this letter, preaching is foolishness. What what more silly, stupid, scatterbrained thing in the eyes of the blinded world than what we're doing right now? <laughs> preaching and, and listening to preaching. I tell you, I, I, I even wonder sometimes myself, I'm tempted to a- ask myself, what am I doing here? What are you doing here? What in the world is is going on. What are, what are we really accomplishing? At the end of the day, ministers simply must take God's word, take him at his word, that, that what, in, in what they are doing, he is working out his, his purposes, whether the result is immediately visible or not. Now again, let me hasten on to say how thankful I am for a congregation who receives the Word of God with joy and seeks to obey it, mostly. It is not, and it has not been for so many, even generations of preachers whose preaching bore so little or no visible fruit at all in the lives of God's people. I would never want to trade places with Jeremiah. 
Fourth and finally, the faithful pastor is fatherly. And while we could spend an entire sermon unpacking what it means for the faithful minister to follow the fatherly model of Paul, who considered his his congregation his spiritual children, as he says in verse 15, perhaps the most important thing that a father does, along with caring and listening, admonishing and encouraging and protecting, is this, leading by example. The faithful minister must be able to say, even if not in these exact words as Paul, something at least close to them, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Like Paul, faithful pastors must lead not by word only, but by example. That's why Paul said to young pastor Timothy, urged him to keep guard not only over his teaching, but to watch his life closely as well. For, Paul added, by them, by his teaching and by his life, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So I say, dear flock, as you love your souls, and as you love the souls of your children, See that you always have such a minister. And that such a minister ever fills this pulpit. And then if not, you do not rest content until you either pray one into this pulpit or else find another elsewhere. If you've heard of John Bunyan, then you've, you've heard of his classic work called The Pilgrim's Progress. In that book, Bunyan weaves early into his allegory his own faithful pastor, John Gifford, whom he loved so dearly and who had loved him so well and led him so carefully and even painstakingly. Soon after fleeing the city of destruction, Pilgrim, Christian is his name, you remember if you've read it, comes to Interpreter's house, and there he sees a portrait of a very grave person hanging on the wall. It had eyes lifted up to heaven, the best of books in his hand, the law of truth was written upon his lips, the world was behind his back. He stood as if he pleaded with men and a crown of gold did hang over his head. Christian asked Interpreter the meaning of the picture, and Interpreter answered, The man whose picture this is, is one of a thousand. He can beget children, travail in birth with children, and nurse them himself when they are born. And whereas thou seest him with eyes lift up to heaven, the best of books in his hand and the law of truth writ on his lips, it is to show thee that his work is to know and unfold dark things to sinners, even as also thou seest him stand as if he pleaded with men. And whereas thou seest the world cast behind him and that a crown hangs over his head, that is to show thee that slighting and despising the things that are present, for the love that he hath to his master's voice, he is sure in the world that comes next to have glory for his reward. 
Now, said the interpreter, take good heed to what I have showed thee, and bear well in thy mind what thou hast seen, lest in thy journey thou meet with some that pretend to lead thee right. But their way goes down to death. Amen.